This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Novelist and essayist Martin Amos died of cancer on May 19, 2023, at the age of 73. He left behind such novels as The Rachel Papers, London Fields, The Information, and his last memoir come novel, Inside Story. On October 29, 2014, I conducted the last of five interviews with Martin Amos about his then most recent novel, The Zone of Interest. A new film adaptation of that novel recently opened to rave reviews. In this interview, Martin Amos also discusses his relationship with his best friend, the political writer and essayist Christopher Hitchens. This book is about life in a extermination camp in World War II, and the main characters are all Germans at the camp. Well, there are three main characters. One of them is a Jew, but the two other main characters are Germans at the camp. It's a strange sort of comedy, but in the end, the horror is kind of unfathomable. From what I understand, that's sort of where you came to write the book. It's never a, the result of a decision. It's always the result of a, a sort of intuitive moment that novelists have described variously as a frisson or a shiver or a throb. And it's just an image or a situation or a character that comes to you with a special glow to it. And you just think, I can write some fiction about this. And you don't know whether it's a short story, novella, or a full-length novel. You can't start without that frisson. And then once you start, you see what's there. And sometimes a very great deal is there almost instantly. And it's as if the subconscious has been working on it and it's there to be written. The image was what you read on the first page of a sort of love at first sight moment against a background which includes a three-wheel gallows, although otherwise completely normal and indeed sort of quite idyllic on the way into the camp. That arose from learning that SS, the SS had their own families and children at Auschwitz. Sufficiently extraordinary fact. So where there are families and people, there are human relationships. And I just thought this would be a great clash of themes, a love story of a kind against a violently anomalous background. What turned you on? Was it that quote from Primo Levi? Or? That empowered me to go on and removed a great burden from me in, in the simple fact that I'd read scores of books on the subject in the last 25 years. I'd increased my knowledge but not increase my penetration one bit. It still seemed to me as fantastic and incredible as it had when I first started looking into it. I can't understand it. So it was a negative eureka. I have not found it. I can't penetrate it. And then I came across this interview he did with himself where he said, one must not understand it. To understand something is to contain it within yourself, and we can't do that with this subject. 
He said there is no rationality in it or coherence. It is a hatred that is not in us. It is outside man. It is anti-human, really counter-human, he said. And once a voice as authoritative as his had absolved me from the, the pressure to understand, the pressure of the why, then I found I could proceed. When you have that image and you finally give up the idea of actually understanding what they're doing, that frees you certainly in terms of the character Thompson, who is a German who goes along with it, though on some level he's also helping work against the system in a, in a strange way. And it also frees you in terms of the Jew who is forced to deal with the dead. But that still brings up the third main character in the book, which is Paul Dole, who is, from what I understand, based on the uh, commanders of Auschwitz and of Treblinka. Uh, Rudolf Hess. I don't think he was commandant of Treblinka. He wrote a book. He wrote it in his death cell in Poland in 1945-46. And it's an extraordinary document. Uh, And Primo Levi writes an introduction to it where he says, despite his attempts to defend himself, he comes across as what he is, a coarse, stupid, pompous, long-winded scoundrel. And the book is almost a a Nabokovian uh, experiment in in a narrator who has no self-knowledge whatever. And that was a a great help to me uh, to understand this this basically bureaucratic nature, Um, although I don't accept, not wholly accept, uh, Hannah Arendt's banality of evil. I think they were banal when they started, but once they started killing, they weren't banal anymore. The concerns are banal. I mean, he takes these terrible things and he puts them in this context of bureaucratic jargon. And can do and uh, an absorption in technical difficulties and never in the morality of the thing. So he's wondering how to get the pyre hot enough to burn these scores of thousands of corpses that they've just exhumed. And apparently you, you read often that the Nazi doctors who were involved at every stage in the killing, they weren't just the Mengele's who did experiments on twins. They were the backbone of the whole operation. And it was a kind of biomedical vision in essence. It was The idea was to excise the cancer of Jewry and make Germany whole. The horror mixes with the comedy in that sense, in that... I feel uneasy with the word comedy, more like satire, in that uh, animated by bitter hatred rather than comedy. I mean, laughter is a much more complicated and varied human response than we think. But once you you do think about it, you realize that you don't just laugh out of gaiety and or in response to irony. You laugh out of contempt, insanity, relief, disgust. To say comedy evokes tittering, and there's, there's none of that in the book. No, there isn't. There's this kind of horrified laughter almost that becomes more horrifying and there's less laughing as the book continues. Maybe what makes it worse is that despite the fact that it's fiction, these things happened. 
Yeah, and I don't diverge from the historical record, except in one instance that I point out in the afterward. But I naturally have control over the internal lives of the characters, so um, plenty of invention there, but not with the historical record. Uh, there are several points in the historical record, Martin Amos, that I'd like to ask you about because, you know, from the safer distance of several years in the future, it's clear at the beginning of the book, which I think is in the spring, late spring of 42. If, Summer, yeah. Yeah. It's clear by the early fall, within a couple of months, because the characters talk about how the war is lost. And what I didn't know was that the Germans felt it was lost that early. It was really lost in December 41 uh, when the collapse of the attack on uh, Russia. And in the war diary, it says the Führer has now acknowledged that no victory can any longer be won. That's very early on. And then four days after that, Hitler declared war on the USA. And he didn't need to. It was a gratuitous and suicidal act. Stalingrad marked the the unignorable fact that they were losing the war. And they did make such a gamble on victory. And Hitler used to say, you know, no one questions Genghis Khan's uh, methods because he's won. He's now known as a great state builder. Well, I think that's a rather romantic idea of Genghis Khan. But uh, when, you, when you're going to lose, then all your crimes suddenly loom much larger. They thought it was working. They thought that merciless brutality could do it and trusted entirely in violence. And as is often said, what is built by violence never lasts. And the Nazis began in violence, proceeded in violence, and ended in violence. And there's hardly a sort of statue that remains of that time. Well, people like Thompson, who are alive because they played sufficiently well with the system, and they knew that it was all going to hell as early as December 10th, let's say, you yeah. know, 1941. At that point, they would know that it's all going to vanish, that it will all be destroyed in violence. And yet, they continue on as if it won't. Well, it, you know, no historian claims to understand these events and, and the character of Hitler. It appears that when the war was clearly lost and they, they couldn't create this Garden of Eden that they had in mind from Germany to the Urals, that they thought, well, what's our other war aim? And they were pathetically limited, the war aims. The other war aim was to destroy the Jews. Far from thinking, well, we better not do that if we're not going to win the war. They thought, well, at least we can do that. And at the very end, um, Hitler said, later generations will thank me and revere me for the service I've done to Europe in ridding it of this vermin by relatively humane methods, he said, as against battlefield. And they redoubled their efforts to get the job done, much to the detriment of their war effort. I mean, so much energy and money and time devoted to this project. There were thousands of camps. You know, there weren't just sort of a few dozen. There were thousands. There's also the fact that there's, there's a kind of argument inside the Nazi hierarchy and zone of interest 
between those who want to put slave labor in the rubber plants and those who say, well, yeah, but then we won't be able to kill them so quickly. Yeah, it's a cliche of the administration, the Third Reich, that all the agencies were duplicated. There was the party agency and the state agency, often working in rivalry, but also in conflict. And the fear was that they might win the war militarily, but lose it racially. So one wing was saying, look, we need this slave labor. For instance, they killed three and a quarter million uh, Russian POWs. And later they were kicking themselves about that, saying we should have kept them for labor. And they were so desperately short of labor that by the end of the war, there were 10 million impressed workers from the occupied countries in Germany just doing that. And it still wasn't enough. So it was one of the great glaring stupidities of the whole project. Was It was uh, against their interests. And again, when you say stupidity, the horror of what they did as you're talking and you're talking normal tones about it, the horror of what they did is even beyond normal tones. Well, yes, and there's a huge and persistent temptation to attribute it to something supernatural that happened in Germany. You know, the best educated nation that had ever been on the face of the earth descending to that. And there are dissident diarists like Friedrich Reck uh, who said that it's, it's beyond history, it's outside history. It's a great rip in history. And none of this can be said of the Soviet experiment, which, for all its dynamism and, and horror, was um, compatible with certain achievable and not irrational ends. That cannot be said of the Third Reich. Is that why you, uh, uh, you've said that, you know, that's the basic distinction between Stalin and Hitler? There are many, but... The trouble is that then you're led to conclude that Hitler was insane. And once you've done that, you will never find a why. There is no why in the mind of the insane. But equal mystery is why his German and Austrian instruments served him. You know, it's a slander often repeated about the Jews, but it's not a slander of the Germans. They went like sheep to the slaughterhouse and then put on the rubber aprons and got to work. That is much harder to believe than Jewish stoicism, resignation, the strategies that had got them through many thousands of years of persecution, where they would negotiate, they would wait for the fever, the anti-Semitic fever to cool and then resume what they could. Hannah Arendt says, and it's probably true, that in the ghettos, the Judenrate, the Jewish councils, who were forced to cooperate with um, the Germans and guaranteed a certain docility in the populations in that they did fill the trains and send them off. Martin Amos, the character of Thompson, the nephew of Martin Borman, Martin Borman had no nephew like that? He had a a half-sister who was older than him, and it fitted perfectly chronologically. But I would have whistled up a a nephew because I thought that was just the right proximity to the highest echelon. Gives him a certain amount of what they call vitamin P, 
uh, protection. I think it's Borman who makes mention of Goebbels as the cripple, Goering as the transvestite, and Himmler as... The quack. The quack. Is that historical? Did someone say that? No. I mean, not as far as I know, but they <laughs> they all loathed each other. And, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an absolute poisonous atmosphere at the top. You know, the, the quest was more power, and they all wanted more power. And power... It's not a metaphor to say power corrupts. It really does rot the brain. And it's true that the Nazis made the Jews pay for their tickets on the railway cars and half price for children? Yeah, and one-way standard third-class fare. It was a very um, avaricious... The zone of interest refers to the business interests in within the zone, the, which is greater Auschwitz. They thought that the whole project would be self-financing because they imagined that the Jews were sort of infinitely rich and had hoarded millions that, that they would get their hands on. You know, just as they used the corpses for every financial gain that could possibly be gouged out of them, the idea was, you know, utter dispossession of the Jews and using their wealth to wage war. Was it called the zone of interest? Yes, it was. You made up the name of the camp. I use a generic name for uh, the Katzed is a concentration lager. In present-day Germany, they refer to them as Katzed. And where exactly were the zones located? And this is kind of a the fictional outfit. Where in Poland is that located? Silesia, Lower Silesia. It's just south of uh, Krakow. Auschwitz was unique even in that system because it was a death camp and also a slave camp, and the other camps tended to be one or the other. I mean, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec, etc., were built ad hoc and then destroyed once the job had been done. But Auschwitz was there from 41 on, all along. And I, I guess you, you have visited it several times? Or? No, once I went. Uh, you only need to go once. 25 years ago, I went, and to Dachau as well. And uh, it was full of skinheads saying that it was all a fabrication. But that was when Germany was wrestling with, you know, it went through many stages in its confrontation with its crimes. Denial, then they tried to relativize what had happened in Germany, saying it wasn't that different to Stalin's rule and to, indeed, the Allied bombing of Germany. That didn't last very long, that attempt to, to, to bring it into history is really what it means, saying it wasn't unusual for the time. But uh, now I think they have done the work, and last time I was there, I was very struck by how the young, 25-year-olds, hungry and eager to talk about it. Um, they're not avoiding it anymore. And at the end of the book, we learn that a couple of Borman's children still live. And I keep wondering what it would be like to be the son or daughter of a monster like that. Yeah, well, there's Svetlana Stalin as well. It's interesting that at one point he scolds his wife for allowing a Christmas tree in the house, Borman and says, you know, one drop of that gets into them, and they're poisoned for life. But all Borman's children, and there were eight of them, I think, uh, who survived, were all religious. Clerics. Uh, they really did 
you know, move in the opposite direction. I think I once suggested that someone should write a book on the children of tyrants. Uday and Kusei Hussein, you know, fascinating. Because they were born corrupt, you know. Most people who accede to power become corrupt, I mean, in their heads. But they were corrupt as toddlers. And what that must do to the character. And look at North Korea today. Yes. Martin Amos, one of your previous books is Cobra the Dread, which is a detailed look at Stalin. And now this. What is that interest in monsters? Lionel Asbo, your previous novel, he's kind of a monster too, on sure. a, but of course on a smaller scale, thank God. Where does that come from, you think? Hard to say. I've written another novel about the Holocaust and another novel about the Gulag. I was born in 1949, four years after the death of Hitler and four years before the death of Stalin, who at that stage in Britain was still known as Uncle Joe. So these huge figures have hovered over my early life. And I said to my mother once, my father was not at that point. No, it was still a communist until 1956 uh, when I was seven. But I, it was Hitler who disturbed me, and I'd seen some photographs of the, you know, the smokestacks and the uh, rail tracks. And I said to my mother, I said, I said, well, what was all that about Hitler and all those starved people? And she said, typically, she said, um, oh, don't worry about Hitler. She said, you've got blonde hair and blue eyes. Hitler would have loved you. And I think that burrowed deep into my subconscious. But really, it's just, um, in all my fiction, I like extremes. The middle class has inspired many tens of thousands of novels, certainly in England, but I've, never, I've neglected them. They're well taken care of elsewhere, but not by me. I was reading one of the reviews of your book, and I came across the word yob. What's a yob? It's backslang for boy, and it means a lout. You've said that the focus of a yob is a combination of masculinity and violence. Yeah. I, I do think violence is, is the curse of our species and the curse of my gender. I've always thought that violence was a sort of category mistake. It is incapable of actually solving anything. All it does is lay down the cause of future conflicts. It lays it down like a wine and then it blossoms at some other some future point violence it's it's the thing that um appalls me most in real life although i quite like it in films and so on and i think many people quite like it in films it's because then it's not real and we can look at it without our whole body flooding with revulsion this is very counterintuitive but stephen pinker wrote a, a long and a uh, revolutionary book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. And he proves beyond doubt with graphs and as thoroughly as it can be done that violence has dramatically declined. And the reasons he gives for this, the, the emergence of the state, Leviathan, who says, uh, I'm going to have the monopoly of violence. You disarm the population and the only source of violence is the state. And everyone did this in the early 19th century, and that had a huge effect. 
America declined to engage in this development. He also says, rather gratifyingly to me, he says the invention of printing and the rise of the novel. The rise of women was another thing, but the rise of the novel, because it transported people into other people's minds. And in the 18th century, there you'd be, and suddenly you were reading and you were, you were involved in your mind with Clarissa Harlowe or Tom Jones or, or Sophie Weston. And that very act of transferring yourself to another being, Pinker thinks is. So I always used to think of myself as a, it being vaguely in the education business, sort of not transferring knowledge, but trying to enrich my readers' perceptions and thoughts. But what I've been really engaged in is the war against violence. I never thought I was involved in anything so grand, but I'm proud to have done that. When I spoke with Pinker not long ago, he uh, he mentioned, because I asked him about specifically about violence, and his comment was, yeah, through most of the world, though not necessarily as much decline in the United States, is what he said. Yeah. Well, you know. they didn't disarm the population. They didn't claim the monopoly of violence. Getting back to zone of interest, in terms of creating <coughs> these characters, how difficult or easy was it to get into the minds of Thompson, Dahl, and um, what is it? Schmuel. Schmuel. Well, Schmuel was a challenge of another kind. I've always felt completely comfortable with Thompson. Um, I thought he was a, a reasonable and moral man right from the start. He learned cynicism as every everyone in Germany did, and all your finer feelings left you. But he was still basically intact. With Dole, it was um, it was more unsettling, and sometimes towards the end, when he's um, referring to the prisoner mistress he has, Alice Sicer, who's a gypsy. He behaves, you know, incredibly w evilly with her. And sometimes I would think, could it be even more evil? And then I'd have, go into a kind of trance and locate in myself this very evil idea. And I felt I had found out something about myself, which is, um, you know, the process that everyone in the book is going through, that you don't really know yourself. You don't need to know yourself until you're in a very extreme situation. And then, you know, you can be astonished by your response, either towards evil or towards good. How does that compare, say, with creating other characters in other books? Did you have to go deeper then for Dahl than you ever had to go before, you think? Well, I had to go to the entirely negative side, which I don't think I'd done before. I've created, you know, three or four male monsters, but there's always something slightly pitiful and slightly redeeming about them. There is nothing redeeming about Dole, except you might find him completely pathetic on one level, but he's one of the most prolific murderers of all time, and that's the stark fact about him. The book, Zone of Interest, the pain, let's say, didn't really hit me until the epilogue until I found out what happened to the people and how it went by. And, and I kept, I guess I haven't really plumbed the depths of why I was able to separate out and, you know, see Dahl, say, as this banal buffoon. But then at the end, 
When you hear what happens to Moore, that he got hanged and... Well, I hear what happens to him, his children, what happens to all of the, the characters, both real and imagined in the book. Suddenly the reality of the rest of the book hit. Yeah, well, it's a reminder that these things really happened and with repercussions. And Ilse Gressa, who's a composite character, the vicious matron, senior guard, female guard, who's 19 when the book opens, she was hanged by Pierpoint, who also did Lord Haw Haw and others, at the age of 23. And that's true. And when you read that and you find out where it was and the date, then suddenly it, it ceases to be a novel in quite the same sense, just at the very end. Martin Amos, you said before about violence begetting violence, and I kept thinking about your late friend Christopher Hitchens and his support of the invasion of Iraq and invasion of Afghanistan and the violence that it begot, which was not merely the war in Iraq. I know you were opposed to that at the beginning, but also what we now see with ISIS. And he's not here now. What, what do you think he would say about the transition from what happened in 2001 to 2003 to today? He didn't give up on the, the justice of his support for the war. And he said, I thought this is the weakest part of his 35-page chapter in his memoir, Hitch 22. He says that, you know, he did expect the Republican administration to be efficient. But isn't that a sort of self-obfuscation? Because we all know that war is, once it's war, as Churchill said, you say goodbye to judgment and logic and you invite to your table you know, chaos and ruin and massive unpredictability. I would very much like to know what he would say about ISIS. I feel that um, it does have analogies with Nazi Germany for this reason, that there was no ideology in Nazi Germany, not really. There was a sort of attempt at it, a sort of patina of ideology. There were very few ideas. And one historian, German historian Sebastian Hafner, said that it wasn't uh, an ideology. It was a rallying cry for sadists, rallying cry for those who will kill, beat, rob without cause and without compunction. And, uh, you know, you heard about these British jihadis from South London. You talk in, you know, a Cockney accent, and off they go to, to join up with ISIS. And the videos tell you, by the way, the online videos say, bring your own toilet paper. It's sort of resonant. You know, you go with the whole case full of bog rolls, as we call them in England. But he, he's not going there. Jihadi John from uh, Walthamstow in South London, he's not going there because he believes in the caliphate. He's going there so he can smash things up so that he can kill people, so that he can feel powerful and have people afraid of him. That's uh, a very strong element. And I think that's just what ISIS is. It's saying, you know, gather around me if this is what you like. Islamism is an ideo ideology within a religion, so they have the double justification, as they see it, of being in the right. And when, when the self-righteous are up in arms, you know, watch out, because they're the most dangerous people on earth. Martin Amos... Um I ask you this question. A couple of people have asked me about it. 
What do you think of those folks, the the so-called truthers, who say that 9-11 was an inside job and that the U.S. itself exploded the buildings? Ridiculous. And it's been exploded itself. It's this loose cannon, in, um, certainly in Europe and, and in various parts of America and levels of America, where America must be to blame for everything bad. In Europe, anti-Americanism is endemic. In South America, it is too. Um, so, so you have to you have to shift the facts around until until the culprit is America, and I think that's what they all have in common. But I no patience with any of that. What you've got to understand about the, the, the conspiracy theorist is that he is, above all, he's a bore. And what he wants to do is do all the talking. And you'll notice that you never get a word in with those, with those guys. And the, the prospect of converting them to common sense is would take months, you know. What they like to do is sound off and be the only voice in the room. Martin Amos, I was reading that your new novel... The next one is almost written, and it started 10 years ago. Is that correct? Yes. It's not almost done either. It was an attempt at an autobiographical novel and about the sexual revolution. And I managed to get another novel out of it, which I'm pleased with, The Pregnant Widow, where I fictionalized myself. And the relief of getting away from autobiography was enormous. But I've come back to it with the sort of proviso in my mind that um, it's not going to be that much about me. It'll be about four writers I knew. Hitchens, one of them, Saul Bellow, Philip Larkin, and my father, Kingsley Amos. So it's about writers and writing. An old-fashioned sort of essayistic kind of novel. Very different from Zone of Interest. Very different. The book Martin Amos discusses at the end of the interview was published in 2020. It was titled Inside Story, a Novel and it would be the final book published in his lifetime. You've been listening to an interview with the late Martin Amos, recorded in the KPFA studios on October 29, 2014, discussing his novel, The Zone of Interest. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com, or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 